0: to say about the country.
1: People do see it differently.
0: In Wuthering Heights, Emily Bronte wrote, I could see every pebble on the path and every blade of grass by that splendid moon.
1: Mm, And didn't Sherlock have something to say on the subject?
0: Yeah, kind of the opposite. He said... The lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside. I'm Lynn Miller.
1: And I'm John Modaff. And this is The Unruly Muse. How are you, Lynn?
0: I'm good today, John. And what about you?
1: Raring to go talk about the country. Oh, just yeah. look at all the things that people talk about that have the word country in it, like country cooking. Country
0: hoedowns.
1: Country style.
0: Country curious.
1: Country accent.
0: Country ramble.
1: Good country people
0: Yes, and what about country curses, mosquitoes
1: Country casual
0: Let us not forget country music
2: Saturday's a good day Saturday's a good day Saturday's my favorite day of the week Saturday's a good day Saturday's a good day, Saturday's my favorite day of the week, you know why? Well, everybody gets the duds out and they roll on his town, or just sit home by the fire. I saw my Uncle Joe and my Aunt May up on the hill holding hands and singing low, Do 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 do. Saturday's a good day. Saturday's a good day. Saturday is our favorite day of the week. Saturday's a good day. Saturday's a great day. Saturday is our favorite day of the week. You know why? Well, everybody gets the duds out and they roll on into town. Try to fulfill their desires. I saw my uncle Joe and my aunt May up on the hill home. Saturday's a good day, Saturday's a great day, Saturday's our favorite day, favorite day of the, favorite day
0: of the, favorite day of the week. This gave me the most marvelous feeling of the event that Saturday was when I was growing up. No school, no work days. Everybody just goes into town. And then I loved the way you did Uncle Joe and Aunt May capturing the sensuality of a Saturday. You know, holding hands on the hillside alone.
1: I distinctly remember seeing them walking up the hill. Of course, I was too young to figure anything, but doesn't that look nice? And their real names, though, were Uncle Max and Aunt Kathy. But I just Mm. couldn't work that into the tune. You know, it's not as sonorous.
0: I love the energy of it.
1: Well, Saturday, folks are pent up, or they just want to just fall down. Either way, pent up or falling down, they're enjoying the day. And it's not just in the country that happens, but it may happen in a special way in the country, like so many things do. One of the things that I've noticed, maybe you've noticed this in your many travels, and your many years in the country, is the family plots and the family cemeteries.
0: Yeah, it's the first thing I do when I go to a small town, is go to the town cemetery, because... It has the energy somehow of the town and the names on the headstones and the dates.
1: Even in a city, a cemetery is its own little country.
0: That's right. And if you're in a big city, I don't know about you, but I go to the cemetery to walk. There's no better place to walk. It's quiet.
1: Right. It's one place you can be in a crowd and not be bothered too much.
0: Yes, I like it. Well... Our first poem explores this mystique and yet commonplace of the cemetery. It's called Memorial Day, and it's by Julie Williams, who lives in Minneapolis.
1: What has she told you about its evolution?
0: She wrote to me, what I recall about that period was that I was living with what I'd call a litany of losses and trying over and over to make sense of what that meant. Returning via a poem to our family's participation in those northern Minnesota small-town rituals every Memorial Day had a grounding effect. This poem was published in a journal called Last Words and was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. I also want to say that Julie is a novelist as well as a poet and a terrific visual artist also.
1: Memorial Day by Julie Williams
0: One On Memorial Day, we go to the cemetery.
1: We hoist Grandma out of the Studebaker, and she leans on me as we walk.
0: Don't step on the graves, my mom reminds me.
1: Is it because we might fall through?
0: I don't dare ask.
1: Our plot has Daddy and my twin brother in it.
0: There's room for Grandpa and Grandma and Mom.
1: I guess the rest of us will end up somewhere else.
0: Today, Mom plants begonias on Baby Tuck's grave.
1: While Grandma cries.
0: Gramps is clearing away winter's debris.
1: And I'm pulling weeds. Two. Two.
0: On Memorial Day, we go to the cemetery.
1: Our plot contains my father, twin brother.
0: And Grandma. She died in October.
1: And we put fresh pink stone down today.
0: With roses carved around its edges.
1: I favor flat stones to all these garish monuments.
0: Gramps says as he works.
1: They let you see the hills and the pines.
0: His hand shakes as he smooths dirt.
1: Around the edges of Grandma's stone.
0: Mom holds a pot of begonias in each hand.
1: I am pulling weeds. Three. Three.
0: On Memorial Day, we go to the cemetery.
1: Our plot is on a hill with my father.
0: Brother... Grandma and Grandpa in it.
1: Gramps died in January.
0: When the ground was frozen hard.
1: So his grave is still fresh where they put him in.
0: Last month, after it thawed, he doesn't have a stone yet.
1: But we picked one out.
0: Just like Grandma's.
1: Mom is planting begonias all down the row.
0: I am pulling weeds and clearing away.
1: Winter's debris.
0: Four. Four. On Memorial Day, I go to the cemetery.
1: Our plot is full now.
0: Grandpa and Grandma are together.
1: My dad, my brother, and then...
0: My mother. She died in October.
1: When they dug her grave...
0: They discovered old bones.
1: There's an extra unknown person...
0: Squeezed in there between them.
1: I brought no flowers today. Only Only me. me.
0: Clearing clearing away away winter's winter's debris, debris, talking to myself, and pulling weeds. Thank you, Julie, for letting us perform your marvelous poem. It's so moving and yet so understated.
1: It's got that kid feel to it early, like, okay, I'm going to go pull some weeds and go through this thing again that these crazy grown-ups do every year. But then each time... It imposes more deeply on her.
0: That's right. And we feel so much the addition and the subtraction of each family member into this plot, which can only hold so many and not our narrator, not our speaker.
1: There's an Ibsenian feature to certain lines like Winter's Debris, mm-hmm. you know, which was Grandpa's bailiwick there for a while. Each time that is said, it becomes thicker with meaning.
0: And the mother always brings the flowers. And so when she finally passes, our speaker doesn't bring any flowers. She can only get herself there, and she can only talk to herself. There is no community to help her in this morning.
1: Mm -hmm. And if you say begone... Uh, I don't know if she did it on purpose, but if she did, she's a genius. And if she didn't, she's still a genius.
0: Yes, she's a genius. And and also, begonias do come out earlier. They're hardy. They're pretty cold hardy. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like this hardy family, of course, would have a flower like that.
1: But you know, there are fingers flying right now to find out if in the etymology of begonia, the phrase begone is buried. I don't think so, but maybe it is.
0: I love that at the end of the poem, the family is together, except for our speaker. And so that sense of being the last mourner to the family of origin is very powerful.
1: Yes, she now is the whole show. And I instantly forgive her for not bringing flowers for some reason. Did you have that feeling?
0: Oh, I think think she could barely get herself there. I understood it. (laughs) I was reminded of that Mike Nichols film that he acted and directed in. It's called The Designated Mourner by Wallace Shawn. It, just the name, the title, The Designated Mourner is what our narrator becomes. And there's, that's a very important thing to be and yet a lonely thing.
1: Well, what has maintained some conversation and some tending to the aesthetics of the place and the ritual lives.
0: That's Right. Well, thank you, Julie Williams. Yes. Well, that had such an upper Midwest feel that perhaps we should go on to our short story excerpt.
1: What have you got for us in this excerpt?
0: This story is called A Winter Heart, and it's one of a series of stories that I've been writing for years about a farm family in North Dakota in the uh, 1970s through the end of the 90s. And uh, this group of stories has just kind of gone on, but Uh, two of them are in my new collection, The Lost Archive, that's coming out next year. This one is not. This one is about uh, the eldest sister in this family of three siblings. Her name is Kath, and she has just visited her family in the winter when this excerpt begins.
1: A Winter Heart by Lindsay Miller
0: On the second morning visiting the farm, I waded through new drifts across the yard and past the grove of elms to the pasture.
1: Noting where and how much my brother David and I would need to plow later that day, the freezing air entered my lungs with authority.
0: A sharp cracking sound up ahead jarred me out of my easy rhythm. At first I thought it might be a tree limb snapping from the cold or collapsing under the snow's weight.
1: But then I heard it again, and this time I recognized the discharge of a high-powered rifle. I whirled around, seeing nothing but white, gentle hills and snow-shrouded tree branches.
0: Panicked, caught in the open, I hurried into the protection of the woods as quickly as I could.
1: In a few minutes, I came to a bank of snow near a small stand of birch. In the deep drifts lay a deer, a doe, bleeding from her chest but still alive, her ribcage shuddering as she struggled.
0: Her muzzle rested dim and gray against the snow, her huge eyes glazing over. She could no longer see me, and yet her very posture and distress beckoned to me. I hovered above her protectively, helpless. helpless.
1: The blood pulsed onto the ground, sickening me with its brightness. Arterial blood, I thought, automatically. In a moment, it was over. I crouched and softly touched the fur at the base of her head.
0: The doe's body lay with perfect grace, even even in in death. death. I looked around me for signs of the shooter.
1: One set of large footprints led out from the nearby trees, then appeared to retreat back into the woods. I speculated on the ugliness of the human creature that had slain her out of season
0: Although I hunted myself, ducks, geese, the occasional pheasant, I couldn't bring myself to shoot deer. The deer inhabited this country, it seemed to me, with more humility than we did.
1: Soon, cold, drove me to my feet and I left, retracing my steps through the pasture.
0: I wondered who the hunter was and hoped it was no one from the neighboring farms.
1: And yet, I hadn't heard the sound of a car engine. Anyone on foot in this weather had to live nearby. I thought immediately of my Uncle Charlie's family, of his two sons, Eddie and Charles.
0: Of the two, only Eddie would kill a deer in winter and leave it to rot in the snow. The thought increased my unease. It would be just like Eddie to signal in this way that he could roam and hunt on our land any time he wished.
1: David and I had caught our cousin trying to borrow one of our farm machines months earlier during harvest when Eddie was drinking instead of working.
0: I'd warned him off and kept quiet about how violent he'd also been to me. But the incident hadn't improved our relationship any.
1: The sun had retreated behind pewter skies by the time I returned home.
0: I felt a sharp sense of loss at the doe's death. Lying there, she had seemed so vulnerable, so female. Later that afternoon, Dad, David, and I trooped through the pasture and into the trees to look at the deer.
1: The day had steadily grown colder, and the wind scattered the drifts from yesterday's storm. A dusting of snow sparkled on the body, lending a veil of animation to the doe's head and flanks. Poaching is bad enough, then to let the meat go to waste.
0: Dad shook his head. He never dressed out anything he hadn't killed himself. Certainly not an animal left for hours by an unknown hunter. I guess I should have told you right away. I didn't say that I'd wanted to leave the doe to the earth to allow the snow to bury her with dignity.
1: She looks like she could have been here for days. David studied the position of the carcass. Both my tracks and the others I'd found were barely legible in the sifting snow.
0: David placed his boot next to one print. His foot looked delicate in comparison to the blocky outline. At 13, David was still slender and loose-boned, his body poised on the threshold of change.
1: Whoever it was has a large shoe size, 12 or maybe even 13D.
0: Eddie and Charles are both big, I offered.
1: Dad looked surprised. True, but I can't imagine either one of them would be over here on our land. Uncle Charlie's got two sections for them to roam if they want to target shoot. Not that this was target shooting by any means.
0: David broke in. Uncle Charlie's pretty strict about hunting season. Remember he hassled me the first year I hunted because I didn't have a permit?
1: Our father nodded. You told him you were only going after ducks on our property. You were only eight at the time.
0: Yeah, but he didn't believe me. I think Eddie put him up to it. He's so darn jealous about anybody hunting on their land, as if it's so great, that he suspects everybody. Fat chance.
1: Dad put a large hand on David's thin shoulder. Your uncle doesn't see Eddie the way you do.
0: He fondly tugged at the brim of David's hat so that it covered the boy's forehead.
1: Some men are blind about their sons.
0: Eddie would shoot anything anytime, time, I said. We know that.
1: David shot me an uneasy glance, and I didn't say any more. Neither of us had decided how much to tell Dad about Eddie's drunken attack in the summer.
0: Maybe we should look at Charles, I offered. David laughed, sounding very grown up.
1: Charles is too fat and lazy to go off hiking on a cold morning. Plus, Charles is a good hunter. I think it was a stranger.
0: What about Edgar and Keith Holstrom? The Holstrom farm was only a mile west of where we stood. As soon as I blurted out the names, I regretted it.
1: These neighbors made up an extended family, their farmsteads adjoining each other within a five-mile radius. The children of these families played together. The parents cooked, sewed, and harvested together. It wouldn't occur to Dad to put Holstroms and trespassing into the same breath.
0: "'Dad swiveled his head in the direction of the Holstrom Farm, "'as if surveying the history of the families that occupied those acres "'rather than the land itself.
1: "'I don't think so. "'I'm afraid it's a mystery, Kath. "'You'll have to let it go.'
0: "'I stared down at the rigid body of the deer, "'strangely reluctant to leave her. "'Soon the drifting snow would cover the carcass. "'I put my hand on my chest, "'imagining my heart, like the doe's, slowly turning to ice.' a winter heart that that the sun would never
1: reach. In the spring, when the earth began to green around her, the body, in the process of slow decay, would simply vanish into the ground, even though the earth's cycles were inevitable.
0: Her death seemed like a sacrifice, another price that this land and and its its humans humans, exacted exacted from from the creatures creatures living upon upon it.
1: Whoa, this is deep. This isn't just a poaching incident. There's something happening here that tests the ties in the family and in the in the area there.
0: Both David and Kath, they know what Eddie is like. They went through this. In another story, David's Harvest is, is the story of Eddie's escapade where he attacks Kath and she ends up having to hold a gun on him to get him to leave. So the dad doesn't know about that, but it's his brother that is Eddie's father. So it's, it's tricky. And then the sort of interdependence of these farm families is another layer.
1: And it's really interesting that his trust, which is so important in the country when there are so few people, folks just have to help each other, that his trust is based on a lack of information. Mm-hmm. The kids know, and in a way, the father is naive, and yet wise and naive at the same time.
0: Well, and this certainly takes us back to the uh, Sherlock Holmes comment about how the country can be the scene of vile acts.
1: Yes, it's so beautiful, but the human stain can be very pleasant in some cases, but in some cases the worst of people.
0: One of the things I was going for in the story is the isolation of the country and how that is a cover for all kinds of things.
1: The city has that weird layer of... Things being private in a way because there are too many people to see them. That's right. But in the country, it's the opposite thing. Things become private and therefore subject to evil's operations because there
0: isn't anyone around. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting paradox mm-hmm. that uh, the country seems so safe and pristine on the one hand, and yet there's not as much accountability in the country.
1: Well, it's so beautiful and it has so many appeals. There's a difference between the country and the wilderness. The wilderness, all kinds of violence happens, but we don't define any of it as just senseless killing for sport, except Mm -hmm. some creatures. Some creatures are reckless when there's abundance. You know, they might take one bite out of a salmon and toss it and take another one. But under most (laughs) conditions, you know, we we don't criticize them for that. But human beings come into wilderness and make country out of it, and they start calling it that. And there's always possession there.
0: It's their playground, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Then they start putting their marks on it uh, technologically and sociologically. She's a woman. She's grown, and she is in her home place. And when you read the story, she could be, and I don't necessarily mean immature, but she's got this verve and this focus and this intensity that you know, she could be 12. And That's true. She's That's really true. affected by that, 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 seem, that moment where she imagines her heart freezing Shows just how much this tore her up. And really the whole Peyton Place thing going on with the neighbors is ancillary to this.
0: And somehow the deer's death is a metaphor for the cost of maintaining this land and the the cost of farming, I think. That certainly comes out in the other stories as well, that, you know, farming is a very dangerous occupation. It's a very hard occupation. Now, just as much as before, perhaps worse. I don't know.
1: I'd imagine you wouldn't want anything to be wrong with your neighbors because you need them so much and maybe you really love them and enjoy helping them too. But the last thing you want is for there to be a reckless killer and, you know, a violent type like Eddie seems to be Mm -hmm. anywhere near the operation. Well, you grew up in the country and then, if I understand correctly, left it for a while for the city and then went back to the country. Did that make its mark on you, do you think?
0: Yes. After we moved back to the country from Chicago, it was such a jarring vision of the isolation and the you know, the cold, dark winters, just sort of disconnection of the country for me. And it, it made a huge effect on me, but it also, I think, turned me into a writer because when I was nine and we moved back is when I started writing short stories.
1: If there's anything happening out in the country, you're it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. For
1: them, for, unless there's a circus or something.
0: That's right. You better make it up. You better make it up. <laughs> and speaking of making it up, I think you forgot to feed that cat.
1: Oh, yeah. I hear the scratching. All right, let's get busy. Let's listen to something peaceful for a minute while we go feed this dang cat.
0: All right. Listening to the unruly muse.
1: Yes, you have, and we sure thank you for it.
0: Well, we have a wonderful poem as our second poem called River Mind by Priscilla Long, who lives in Seattle. She says, I grew up on a dairy farm beside a river, or perhaps I should say in a river, because we kids swam in that river every day all summer long. This was the Chester River, a tributary of Chesapeake Bay. Everything in the poem, the eels, the kingfishers, the barnacles, the snakes, the minnows, the mud, they were all part of the river, and now it seems they are part of me.
1: River Mind by Priscilla Long One analyzes a childhood better with reveries than with facts.
0: Bachelard Childhood slow, slow river, river slides. slides,
1: snake-bellied
0: Down its mud bed
1: To sleep in unknown seas
0: The river's wet-eyed girl
1: Watches jellyfish swish their stinging skirts
0: In brown beams of sun Fish dart and flash
1: Like silver happiness
0: The river slides its brown body down
1: A smooth mind bed
0: To slip itself to sea
1: I drift in the mind's murmuring
0: My hand-stirring minnows
1: a branch stroking the muscle ripple of river.
0: A kingfisher hunts the flash of silver knives.
1: At bottom, gorgon eels coil in primal childhood.
0: Stubborn as barnacles.
1: The river swills its secret snakes.
0: Its bright stones. It, it dreams, dreams the wet wet-eyed eyed girl, girl down, down to, to sunless, sunless seas. seas. That is such a great depiction of the timelessness a child can find in the country.
1: And the details are sophisticated, but they're in the language of youth.
0: Yes, and I love the wet-eyed girl because as in Priscilla's genesis of the poem, you really do feel she's in the river. She's not by the river. She's in the flow and the life of that river.
1: Long enough to notice because she dares to look as we've Pointed out in so many of our earlier programs. Because she dares to look, and she's there to look, she notices these details that make her happy.
0: And she mentions primal childhood. And there is something primal about this poem. The first time I read it, it just grabbed me by the throat and wouldn't let me go. I had to read it again immediately.
1: It puts names to things that I've noticed and didn't have a name for. For example, the muscle ripple of river. Yes. I have seen that, and I've seen a branch poking out of it. And I I thought, that looks like something. But Mm -hmm. I never quite could figure out, but I think she's nailed
0: it. Absolutely. I love the combo of the river and the sea.
1: But it also helps us examine part of our theme in that it talks about this weaving in or this uh, osmotic effect between nature and country and the growing child.
0: Yes, and we mentioned country music early in this program, and this poem is so musical, both the river and the words, the language, the rippling eels, it's everything.
1: I wonder if people are different, of course individuals are, but having grown up or spent a substantial amount of childhood in the country, as you did and as the the poet here has done, I wonder if they really are qualitatively different in how they process details and situations and conflicts. Is there a city-country contrast?
0: Well, I think there is. Right now, I'm reading a novel, and I notice it's by a New York City writer, and I notice there aren't any details of landscape or even temperature. It's it's all interiors, Mm -hmm. and that's obviously not true of all New York City writers. But it makes sense to me that someone who who's lived in a mega city all their lives, as I believe this person has, what would be the most glaring thing about where she lives? It would be inside buildings, along pavements, Mm -hmm. with people, right? And contrast this to this poem, for instance. Either poem that we read today or my short story, there's so much about the environment.
1: Mm -hmm. It's another character. It's bigger than another character. It's, It's a world. That's right. And you can't tune it out. I haven't spent a lot of time in cities, but when I have, I spent a lot of energy tuning things out. Yes. Just the noise and the, and the you, you know, we don't need to do a laundry list of what's undesirable about the city. Whereas in the country, the opposite happens. There's this opening up and you just want to absorb as much of it as you can.
0: Yeah, the country gives you the space and the time and the quiet, in our ideal anyway, to meditate and find oneself, which is what Wordsworth was telling us two centuries ago. I wanted to point out that Priscilla's book of poems, Holy Magic, won an award from Moonpath Press, and that she has a new book forthcoming on thriving in old age called Dancing with the Muse in Old Age. Well. Thank you, Priscilla.
1: Yes, thank you.
0: Well, what about the things that do disturb the country, like the train in our next song?
1: Yes, we briefly alluded earlier that there is a human stain on the country, or the wilderness that turns it into country, and technology is certainly part of that fingerprint. And trains were one of the first really disturbing technologies, because unlike the, the wagon, which once it was gone, all it left was a maybe a rut and some dust, and whatever people pitched over the side... But the train, it carved up the land, and it made connections that had never been made before. And yet we get a little romantic, don't we, when we see abandoned and old technology in the country being swallowed up.
0: That's right. Marshall McLuhan said that very well when he said that old technology... Pieces of old technologies become works of art when they're no longer used.
1: Well, our next song, which was written by my brother Daniel P. Modaf, although he said I wrote the third or the last verse, I had forgotten I did that. But uh, he he really did 99% of the work. And uh, here's how he explains how it came about. He used to live in southeast Ohio, and he used to drive around in the area, and it's very rural. And on one particular route he took often, on the outskirts of Gloucester, Ohio, he said, I would pass an old locomotive on a dead-end stretch of railroad track. It was partly covered by trees and bushes, but it always caught my attention. I could never find out the story behind it, so I created one. Georgia Pacific
3: 219. I'm the south side of town by the old Dairy Queen says Georgia Pacific 219. Behind the cottonwoods and brambles on a dead-end stretch of rail, it's been too long since we heard her whistle wave. She left the yard in 1920, pulling coal to Tennessee. From the stockyards to New Orleans In 43 she labored Carrying soldiers off the war Then in 52 she carried off some more Now her working days are done No more rails left to run the glory days of the great machine. Georgia, the city, 219. She spent her last days in Toledo, farming lumber to the mill, passing trains, of half her age and skill. But the company pulled her number. And the god called her name states, and truckers were to blame But the railroad loves its heroes Not about to let her go Some train men drove her down by this old road Where kids could play wonder And lovers kiss and hide And old engineers Come to say goodbye. Now the working days are done No more is left to run In the glory days of the great machine Georgia, listen, 219 South side of town by the old Derby Queen says Georgia Pacific to 19.
0: I think that the train is such a 20th century fascination, even though it came about earlier than that. Tell us what's so riveting about trains to those in small towns and rural areas, besides their disruption.
1: I grew up in a small town that was connected to the city by the train. And then if you took it west, you were in the boonies most of the time until you hit Aurora, which was near the end of the the line there on the Burlington Northern commuter. And then freight trains would roll by. And It was just enough to see and look at what was being moved to have your world expanded. Uh, So that was part of the allure and part of the good that trains did. It connected towns in ways that allowed them to prosper. It allowed their manufacture to move and the farm goods to move in and out. It really was a lifeline. If your town didn't get a train uh, or a route or a stop, that could be devastation. Mm-hmm. And so it really was as significant as being connected to the Internet is now, I think. it's If you're not on that line, you are missing out on the cutting edge of civilization. I wouldn't say progress necessarily because a lot of damage was done, but civilization's march was certainly brought about by the train.
0: Well, and I think that image of the young boy or girl standing and staring at the back, at the caboose, retreating, that the train represents freedom and the new world to kids and even non-kids. I mean, if you're stuck somewhere and you see a train go by, you think, oh, I wish I were on that train.
1: There's a romance to the train that I associate both with the city and the country. Trains in the city are remarkable too and very uh, evocative, but a train in the country Hearing that lonesome whistle blow you know, over miles, there's just not another sound like it.
0: Yeah, and I love the phrase, the glory days of the great machine that's in the song. And this reminds me again of Sherlock Holmes in the Arthur Conan Doyle stories. He and Watson are always jumping the train. They're getting, they're getting on. They're taking a train to go yes. to one part of London to the next. But they're often going up to Scotland or they're going out in the country to investigate crime.
1: And in this way, the city penetrates the country right? And this is what bothered a lot of people about the trains. But it's just that romance can't be killed. And I think seeing an old, decaying piece of technology that at one time must have been just marvelous and enabling and even frightening in its noise and its capacity, just to see it sitting there. And it's a play thing now. It's a place to visit. It's humbling in a way. And we both have seen it. I'm sure everyone listening has seen it. Nature will just swallow up something that human beings make.
0: And that's one of the great forces of the country, that it will reclaim itself.
1: Yes, all the barns being tugged down by gravity and kudzu and who knows what else. That's right. And the houses that I always wonder who lived there, and and what day was it when the last person walked out of that place now that has a tree growing up through the living room?
0: Yeah, and when will it fall down, and when will that train rust and disappear? Mm -hmm. This makes me think, John, about our next episode and what we're going to explore.
1: Yes. Well, there's a lot of crazy stuff happens in cities and the country, and that got us thinking about one thing that's in both places. That's human beings. And if you want to talk about crazy, that's a species. That's it.
0: We're calling it in/slash sanity. So in yeah. sanity, we will look at both of the poles of that word. Which seems very appropriate as a reflection of our time.
1: And it has its appeal. Sometimes we like a little craziness in our friends, and other times, well, it just goes too far. So we'll be swinging both ways on this pendulum.
0: Absolutely. And if you're interested in learning more about The Unruly Muse, you can go to our website, theunrulymuse.net, and choose podcasts and see all of the episodes and play them.
1: Indeed. And I want to thank two people who I did not thank earlier in the show for helping out on Saturday that's Dave Merrill ripping it with the 64th notes on the banjo
0: fantastic
1: my brother Dan underneath on another banjo doing what he calls plunking for some nice rhythm so thank you boys
0: well I think we can conclude that the country has some nice rhythm
1: yes it does it does despite uh, its downs it's got some great ups
0: you've been listening to the Unruly Muse I'm Lynn Miller
1: and I'm John Modav.